Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, Arc IT, BQE Core, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology, our two favorite subjects. I have a little bit of housekeeping up front here. I have started yet another show, which is both on YouTube and as a podcast called Peopleverse. In the Peopleverse, we explore the interesting people and the stories behind the projects to remind us why we got into this industry in the first place and to build relationships along the way. My goal is to help bridge the gap that exists between design professionals and the people who make all the parts that our buildings are made of, the building product manufacturers. If that sounds interesting in any way to you, please head on over to peopleverse.fm to learn more, and please subscribe wherever you get your content. In this episode of Troxel, I welcome architect Greg Schlusner. Greg is a principal and director of design technology at the global design, architecture, and engineering firm, HOK. You might have heard of it. In his role, he is responsible for managing the firm's software development efforts, implementing new technology solutions, and partnering with collaboratively-minded companies to solve ongoing challenges in AEC. It's that latter part that is super interesting to me. Greg leads technical efforts within Building Smart International as a co-chair of the technical room. He is currently working to organize AEC member firms to help develop new solutions, both open source and via commercial technologies. And Greg has an undergraduate degree in architecture from Iowa State University and a master's in technology management from Columbia. In this episode, we discuss some topics that intertwine with his recent presentation on some of HOK's R&D projects at AEC Magazine's Next Build 2021 conference. I highly recommend watching the Next Build presentation and read the corresponding article by Martin Day at AEC Magazine, which I've linked to both in the show notes, to round out all these topics. The main gist of it is that the software we all use to do our architectural projects, you know the ones, is a major barrier to creativity and productivity, and the question is, is there anything we can do about it? So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Greg Schlusner. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Evan. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. I I am interested. I I I guess it's actually kind of made the rounds. There's, there's article in AEC Mag, and and you did a presentation at Next Build, and kind of pointing out the absurdity. I, I'll say, like especially when you you talk, you show all the sheets and all the annotations, and you just actually start giving some numbers. As far as like what we're dealing with as architects when it comes to BIM and, and man, it just kind of reinforces that. I don't know if it doesn't have to be this way, but we all agree that it is this way because we all continue to play this game and it's actually pretty broken. And I'm just wondering like, okay, how did we get here? And I know you've 
dug deep into this. And and maybe you're you're not as interested in how we got here because it just kind of quote unquote happened to us. Like we're obviously big proponents in that whole whole game, but it got this way without us kind of re-questioning how it should work today um, because it's hard to replace, right? This, the kind of this, the day-to-day stuff that we're dealing with. So maybe you can tell us like through, through your research, how you're approaching this problem with the work that you're doing. Well, again, thanks for having me. So I, I started the pandemic sort of wondering if I was having an effect uh, on anything anymore. Like I've been in technology for a long time. So you sort of, well, it's the pandemic. So I question, you know, am I good for anything or am I having the, having the effect that I actually want to have? And so I started that by trying to formulate like very basic stuff. Like I know something's wrong. It doesn't feel right. It feels gross the way we people have to work sometimes in this BIM discussion. And so I started doing things like, which I don't think I would ever show to people, just trying to think about how would you even measure productivity of a software? Just basics. And That's a great, great question to ask because it is so hard to answer. I mean, it's, it's not a great question to ask. (laughs) Well, I, I, I get annoyed by marketing material left and right. And so I, I, thought to myself, well, I really need to come up with something that actually measures this. So I came up with a, a notion that in software, we're not talking about construction or anything like that. In software, it has to be what unit work can I do versus how long it takes me to do it. As simple as that. And so again, this isn't meant to be like the uh, a treatise or anything because you quickly come to running out of steam trying to do this over and over again. But I took something as simple as, okay, if if I know I'm drawing a building from scratch or modeling a building from scratch in one of the BIM platforms, if drawing a wall from point A to point B, perfect. Very well suited for it. That's not like you have to pick the style or something like that. But what if you wanted to model that same wall coming from existing conditions from point clouds? And I went through and sort of counted. Well, I think there's like nine steps. And so when you take... The difference between, well, this one wall tool is suited for that, and but the that same wall tool is really ill-fitting for that other use of producing the same amount of information. Well, there, there you sort of have the method you start to might start to dig into the problem. Like, okay, we have all the tools, but it's only good for one version of how we do our work. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. Man, and there's just, that goes so deep. You're just say, citing one example, but there are so many things where we're applying the wrong tool to the job at hand, right? And not not because it is the wrong tool or we don't have enough tools, but like they're just, I don't know, there aren't enough tools to to cover all the bases for all the various. And then you'd have to train everyone and you could see how this just starts to snowball. Well, yeah, and it... it- you wouldn't want to live in a world that there's 50 wall tools, if, especially if you, if you had to live with all of them at the same, uh, all of them at the same time versus just having the one and you know how to use it. So it certainly wasn't, okay, uh, this is the thesis. Let's talk about wall tools. But it, it spoke to the fact that like generically, none of the vendors out there are going to build 50 wall tools, even though there might be 50 versions of needing one. And so then it's okay. 
is the solution to this problem that there are needs for 50, but you never put them in one tool because putting them in one is a very silly way to solve this problem because our industry is, you know, huge buildings or small little boutique firms, you know, tiny renovations to airports. Does it make any sense to think that one platform is going to solve, solve any of this? It's interesting to think about it that way. It reminds me of, uh, I've had Daniel Davis on the podcast and he, we talked about his thesis regarding horizontal versus vertical, right? And how the software that we're talking about is very horizontal. It's kind of solving that baseline problem for all types of architecture, all types of buildings, all typologies with, with certain, you know, degrees of freedom to choose finishes and weight makeup of the wall and things like that. But it's like all the architectures use a wall, right? And so when you start to get into specifics, especially in a global design firm that does many different verticals who need to solve things in many different ways, you are talking about kind of a different can of worms there. That's a big, that's a big difference from what a, a solo practitioner would come up against. But even that solo practitioner is going to have different use cases. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And and what that immediately, and, and I think I understood this maybe intuitively is not the right word prior prior to doing this work is, well, why don't I have just the tool I need to do the kind of work I do versus having this monster of a tool and I don't want a monster bigger tool. So you sort of want to say, well, what's the the smallest user experience I can have to get my job done well, right? Going back to the in a wall example, if I'm doing you know, interior fit outs, I might need five versions of those tools, but I want to be I, the best experience would be a person doesn't have to deal with anything more than what they need, but there's still a capability to, you know, extend that to make it better, you know, the layout algorithms or anything like this. But you see that happening in the market today. And, and what you, what that means is just, smaller and smaller tools that only cover a slice of the market. But if you want to cover everything, then we don't have the right model. And so this start started me getting down the path of, well, is actually what we need something more akin to you. Um, you operate on the data independent of the tool. Cause that means you can bring any number of tools to bear at the problem. That makes sense. Yeah, and I think I think when it's it's interesting because people do get into kind of authoring tool wars. There's a, a weird loyalty to authoring tools, but what you're saying is like that that authoring tool should be just the best tool for the that job, maybe. But the underlying data should have some consistency, a structure to it that makes sense, no matter which tool you decide to use on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this sounds like an idealistic world. So like midway through maybe early into 2021, let's say that I started digging into similar industries. So VFX, the film world, uh, everybody's excited about USD in that space, which is, you know, uh, NVIDIA is making Omniverse, which runs on top of USD. That's a cryptocurrency, right? (laughs) Uh, no i'm uh, no uh no USD uni- is uni- not. universal scene description is uh, a little ways but i know uh, it's a good joke uh universal scene description is a nice uh domain specific version of this problem 
Okay. I have not heard of that. So it, it, it comes out of, and it, it's a little tangent, but I managed to work out what it was. And then I found out how it came to be, which is an interesting way to come about it. So I learned after the fact that the VFX world sort of went through, they call them generations, which is, you know, if you were around when uh, Toy Story was made, I, the timing might not be perfect, but maybe Maya wasn't really a shipping product yet. So that's Gen 1 in a lot of studios. It's different across studios, but it's generally the same. And Gen 2 is where we generally are at, which is Maya comes along, put everything in Maya. Mm-hmm. And then I was, I didn't know about this generation problem, but Gen 4 is where USD is today, which is basically to say, we craft our movie uh, in Maya in 10 different tools, but the scene should be described outside the tool. So universal scene description. So the scene exists outside these tools. And so I looked at that and said, well, that's a, that's exactly where we want to go to. How did they get there? And I didn't have any sort of strong context. It wasn't until last two months I, re- I realized that they had a what Gen 3 was, because I didn't actually have these generations, but Gen 3 was, well, extend the data on top of the existing tools, but externalize it. Hmm. And once you start to understand that, that it, there's a, a sort of a path to follow, you know, Maya and Revit, Rhino, Archicad are not the same tools, right? but the model exists. And actually, you had a guest, and I'm a blank on his name. He works for Trimble. Yeah, Tom Kleiskins. Yes. Right. Um, he described this sort of evolution, but again, he didn't use these words. But it, it made me dig into this to understand it. And I guess the, the point of this is, okay, I, I'm not just inventing this. Someone else that actually looks very similar to us. Studios are much bigger than firms, so it's not a great comparison, but they're a project, project-based market. The technology is in support of the creative process, not the thing. So I thought, okay, it's a believable idea to put this forward. Let's figure out how to do that. And gets me to the presentation where you, you're, I'm really at the point of, okay, I have to prove it. And, you know, sort of taking all the work I did before, okay, this doesn't feel right. How do I actually tell the story of why the current process doesn't work? So that's sort of how we got to me speaking at Next Build and then ultimately the follow-up article you mentioned. And I'll put links to both of those in the show notes so that we don't have to rehash all of that. I'm I'm wondering what if you could provide maybe an a big picture of what would this scene, you know, this USD for architecture kind of look like. Well, I think what you're what you're trying to do is let me say it a different way because it, it, externalizing it makes a lot of sense technically because it enables this sort of business uh like sort of use any tool the best tool for the job it can be huge and small um the other component of this and and this is the part i'm really i think is just as important as, as a technological component is it is the only way we have our have to change the relationship with the existing software companies so our data which is currently in these tools to really change the relationship to say that the the market is based on competition from every platform, making sure we work this way, is if we can make that technical change, then we actually can change the way the market works. So you don't have to replace anything. You can actually fundamentally change the dynamics of the market to some extent. 
maybe if somebody doesn't want to change, do you replace them? But that's the the theory. Let's put it that way. So I think it's just important, and I want to say that because we don't have a great, you know, sort of version. The starting point we do have is something like IFC, but it it's not implemented very well, and it depends on what side of the world you come from. How good IFC is is a software problem or a standards problem. I take part in Building Smart International as as a co chair of the technical room, and so there's a lot there that we don't use well. And the implementations are bad. So I've definitely gone down the route of, okay, let's just start there. And if you're going to build on top of something, at least we have something to start with. I'm not saying that uh, a lot of the things that um, are happening in the market, like Hypebar and Speckle and these other platforms that invent their own uh, serializations, aren't the, play- the right you know, sort of models. But I'm, I'm sort of a pragmatist. Make it work the, the dumbest way possible. So make it work with a file. Make it work in small bits of data. And then we can talk about web services and so forth. Because what, what I'm not really talking about yet, but is underlying this, is this is not going to happen by one firm at all. Never could. right? So you have, to make, you have to make the market for working this way or building these tools. And so you have to have something for everybody. Like, yeah, HOK could spend the spend the time to invest in web services and making it all web-based. But if you're a three-person firm and you just want to work on Dropbox, you need a solution to work the same way. So really, that's sort of fed into sort of the prototyping work I've done. And really, that's the that comes down to a couple key things. And this is sort of all you need to get started. The data has to be out of the software without, I call it latency, but there's got to be a better way to saying this. You have to trust the data minutes after the work is done in any platform. Wherever the data is distributed, you have to be able to trust it, that it's up to date and outside the tools. That's the basics. Let's start there. Why? Why, why does that have to have that, that low latency? Well, and I think this really comes back to why the market works the way it does now. Um, uh, the truth today is the platform you work in. So you meaningfully, people end up putting the plugins and do development work and investments on those platforms that give you that information. Just from a very basic perspective, it, if uh, it takes you an hour to export data out of, let's say, Revit, to do something else, if you have an alternative that's in Revit, you're just going to do the one Revit. I mean, no one's going to spend extra time to do that work. So it's actually very just practical. And then on top of that, if the goal is changing the relationship, you don't want to use a existing platform and just get more lock-in. So the idea that you get the data out without any latency, and then once, once that is done, you can build on top of it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I think that it, I, that's a, one of the huge reasons we see exactly what we've seen is because we sell time for money as architects, right? And so if we can spend less time and it is in real time because it's right there and we can force all of our consultant teams and everybody under the sun to use the same software so that we can get that benefit right then, you know, not thinking long term, not thinking these things out thoroughly down the road, 
the repercussions that have come up because of that. And then all we see is lock-in now. And now we start to see, like, we've been doing that since, what, 2008, 2009, 2010, I don't know. Some people are just getting started. Holy crap, how hard is it to get out of it when you've been doing it for that long? It's even harder. Yeah, this is a this is a huge deal. And so that you're talking about that kind of real-time nature of the... I don't know what you call it, but it's a, it's like these element identifier kind of database, or I don't know what it is. It's a decision database. It seems like it's a lot of different things potentially, but that has to be being separate from the model is maybe a way to start getting away from this lock-in. Yeah. When I, like I said, uh, I like to solve things in the most, I said dumb, but basic way possible. So what I've actually done, this is open source, but buggy and it's on HFK's GitHub account is a by element IFC exporter. So basically just basically writes a file per element, which is interesting like to think about like starting there is clumsy. But that logic actually got me back to something that I thought about years ago is like, well, if if Revit didn't come around and let's say Archicad never made it to the US market in a timely fashion, would we have just adopted mechanical modeling tools? you know, directly skipped over this sort of model to draw sort of thing, um, which a lot of people were trying to do, you know, sort of when Revit adoption was ramping up like early, um, oh, I'm going to blank on the name, the Katia version for uh, for architects. Digital project. Digital project, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm usually really good with software, so it's surprising that I didn't remember this. But uh, if you look at those products, they're part modelers. Right, you you make assemblies of pieces, and when you start to like, okay, think that way. There's all kinds of problems that would be really useful for us to actually think that way. It's a whole, again, start with the basics, but like version control, like or change control. Let's even say that, like something that's very hard today, clumsily handled. Uh, not all platforms have it. Well. If you write out every time things change and not the things that don't change. Just throw a flag yeah, when you load the part, right? Right. Yeah. You can make Google Docs a very, or Google Drive, sorry, a, like a very intelligent version manager for all the things in your model. And, and IFC is, this is where IFC is just good because it's text and it's actually quite straightforward. There's plenty of tools that I'm working with that do it, but I'm working with somebody right now to make really good demonstrations of this is merging. So the idea that the the raw things are almost like source code in this process, like like a single file of an element, and you want to have a you know share model or do coordination, you just merge them into the data set you need, and there you have you know sort of a built piece of software, or the equivalent of it, that's just the data you need, but you have the all the pieces from all the different constituents to you know sort of assemble it in any different way you want. Would that force us to have to think differently about how we build these models? Yeah, eventually. I mean, it, it's a usefulness. The way I look at it right now is you let's let's target things that are useful without having to have that conversation. Yeah, <laughs> right. Change because is hard. We, we we don't have we don't have platforms to really manage these things. We don't have platforms that think at a part level and okay collect me all the rated walls and I'm going to send that off to the, well, let me a better example, collect me the, the rated, the rated walls, the rooms and the doors, 
make a model for those things. And because I'm going to share something with the hardware consultants, versioned point in time. I know if things change in the future, the when they comes back, because I can compare old versions. Like we just don't have the tooling to do those things yet. Absolutely right. I sent a package of information today. One month later, I get the response back. What's different between those two th- pieces of information are, you know, this is what people pull their hair out and try to figure out how to Excel schedule tools and Revit and all the this design stuff. changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, I, we're not even talking, we're not even talking about like the super packaging of construction projects at this point, which is another version of this problem. But yeah, that, okay. So you get the data out. Is there, are there things you can do with versions uh, or if you have discrete data, is are there workflows that could really just show you meaningful stuff, like walk me through slab openings or something like that? I want to coordinate with a structural engineer. This is the sort of place I'm at right now, you know, sort of, if you will, the first product pitch of what to do with this sort of information. Well, you know, sort of waving your hands and talking about, okay, if we had like um, Team Center is a good example from Siemens that is like the the workplace that all these models get assembled in one of the, in the world of in the, the mechanical modeling space. We don't have those things. So let's not try to build all of that, but it's an interesting place to point to again. Yeah. So fundamentally it is a different data model. And I think one of the issues that we're seeing with the current tools that we have to work is let's just cram more stuff into this one model. And at some point, the hardware will catch up with the software. The software will catch back up with the hardware. You get this, but it's always more like the answer is always more instead of disparate ways to slice up that data, to show the right things to the right people and to have those elements kind of, and I guess where I was going earlier with, would it change the way we have to work? It, I think it, at some level we would have to be a lot more careful. Everybody would have to have ownership of the care that you would want to place into those individual elements so that it's not garbage in, garbage out, which I think happens a lot of times nowadays is shortcuts are prioritized because we sell time for money and not everybody treats the data with the same fidelity as their next door neighbor necessarily. Right. Well, you're, you're touching on something that, again, I've sort of gone real deep over the last couple of years on this problem and then try to surface it out. Okay, does this mean anything that's useful? One of the more salient things that actually came up with from work years ago when we were trying to ask, you know, sort of when are you going to rebuild Revit in 2014 or something like that was, well, actually, we already have a problem that we don't have a good solution for that is we have a lot of stuff that's owned by a lot of people and multiple people specifically. Like, the very easiest, the simplest one is something like a slab. You know, usually there's two. If you're if you're good, the architect might have the topping slab. If you're you know sort of to represent either finishes or the things that they need to control, and then you have the structural slab. But you already have two. So what you really want to, you know, sort of that point, we were thinking about this idea that, well, it's just one slab and. I wouldn't have said it back then, but I would say, well, that, that, that slab is an assembly of two pieces of information, the structural engineer's information and the architects. And if you really pay attention, it's actually, it starts to be a collection of like five pieces of information because you have like, well, if you're doing uh, construction modeling for rebar, 
there's a third that makes up that. And so you end up this having this um, going back to the thing that I thought about, but didn't understand this sort of modeling approach could help is this assembly of information problem we have today, which we, so you're talking about that our, our, our ability to maintain and care for model quality and stuff like that is really, really, we struggle with it. And this is actually something I cover at the, the next build presentation is I, I agree we should get there. I think drawing should be free at this point. But if you can't check your work and the work checking tools aren't getting built in the authoring tools, they're not getting built in Revit and ArchiCAD and this sort of stuff to like really understand that are my slab edges coordinated so I don't have to like stare at a drawing or something like that uh, to check. Well, if I get the data out, then I can actually sort of look more like a software process, like a continuous sort of integration process that you check it all the time. So it goes back to like, okay, this getting the data out in real time means that uh, we could make tools that autonomously or automatically or whatever word you want to use, just look at the information Notify and help you. Yeah. Yeah, and verify, you know, I'm, I'm not one to want to send a thousand emails. Oh, this slab is the wrong spot. But so, but you can envision a world where it always knows when it's time to look, you do. Right. Yeah. And maybe Uh, there's even like a way to set up like a tolerance. (laughs) Don't notify me if it's within notify me if it's outside of these boundaries. Right. I can see that. And there's, you know, you start making the list. There's countless versions of those things. Well, don't show me small pipes in an automated clash detection that you're doing because you have this data until, two weeks before a deadline. I don't need to see it early on, but you can imagine how that grows over time into an ecosystem. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. ArcIT. Let's start this off with a short story. When Zach, a principal architect at CSDA Design Group, came to ArcIT, his network was hit with a ransomware attack and had been down for going on seven days, and his current IT support provider was telling him that it should be back up any day now without making any progress on getting them back up and running. When he came to ArcIT for help, they worked to recover his firm's most important project files first so he could be back up and running because they understood there are deadlines to hit. Zach's firm has now been with ArcIT for going on a year, and he couldn't be happier. So, as business owners and architects, How often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope. 
because Arc IT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. Arc IT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at Arc IT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. In this podcast, I talk a lot about all the realities with my guests, you know, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality, all the realities. And I've got a new message for you from my friends at Avail. Let's talk about the new reality, which is that content, as I've talked about in the previous message from them, both wants and needs to live everywhere. Long gone are the days of saving files to your local hard drive or to a single on-premises server. In order to solve remote collaboration, information has moved to the edge. The cloud is king. And the number of cloud services out there dictate that the number of storage locations will continue to grow dramatically. Where do you store your files? BIM 360, OneDrive, SharePoint, Box, Dropbox, AWS, Azure. Chances are you probably save them in some weird combination of those that I just mentioned and more. Well, here's the point of this message. Avail hides the complexity of where content and information resides. What file to use used to be your biggest concern. Now, it's where do all those files live. Avail takes where out of the equation, which means that with Avail, you can actually find your mission-critical and not-so-critical files, too, right when you need them. Avail helps get you the information you need faster. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing the systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by an acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com slash masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people 
for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to our conversation. This this ownership idea over elements, though, is it runs through and through because it's it all comes down to kind of the legal framework of who's the one who is responsible for the thing. And even though there is an assembly, and like you said, maybe there's five owners, somebody ultimately has to take responsibility for that thing because of the contracts and the legal system and the framework that our whole practice operates on top of standard of care, all of this stuff. What a disaster. <laughs> hey, this, I'm glad you brought this up because like, I, I have opinions on all of them. Let's just put it that way. I, not in that talk, but the article actually points to a, an, a building smart oriented presentation I give, which really talks to the fact that I'm sort of, um, I'm a technologist. I'm an architect by training, but I'm a technologist at this point. The idea that our industry and people of my ilk, let's say, would say something like, oh, we have to fix the legal stuff before the technology works is just silly in my mind. So you're absolutely right. But I, I guess what I would say is like, if I, and this is slightly technical and I've never tried to say it slightly less in a less technical way, but let's say that floor slab exists. We know it exists, but that's all we care about is the, the concept that that floor slab exists is the, it's the one on the second floor. That's it. Well, if I have that concept that can be ownerless, you know, you delete it, it goes away, but it, it is just the concept. So what you're able to do with that idea, and this is, I, we made jokes about cryptocurrency or you did on the, the, on the start of this, but this is to me, this is like, oh, this is a ledger. So you have a ledger that says this thing exists and that's per- permissionless and just available. If that thing exists, then I, as the architect, can associate my data with it. I still own it. And I, as the structural engineer, can associate mine. And actually, I don't have to share that information because it's just associated. It's not the data. It's just a, you know, the concept of the slab has this link back to the data I have. But if I share that data with the contractor, they can make their own and associate that on top of and say, well, I don't want the architect's data. I just want the structural's data. I want my own. And what you're able to do is assemble a data set that's linked to that concept. So, you know, if things do change, you could reshare and update through the, the shared idea of that slab. But you don't have to address, oh, who owns the model today? Well, because having multiple copies and of the representation of the data is inherently designed to be that way. Versus what we have today is like somehow we have to know what's in, what's editable in a set of data that we have and somebody else can make change. But then if we give them a new copy, it voids all their data. And Right, right. Yeah, it's a mess. So it makes me think of trust. Like if the model that you're talking about requires it, I think, just to, number one, not be just the one who's constantly snooping around looking for changes because then I can point the finger at somebody and say, yeah, but you did this at this time and that was too late, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like an assumption of trust that we are all working toward a a goal 
that we're all playing a part in and that we, I guess there's also an understanding that things do constantly change throughout the entire process. And we, we already know this, but people are often looking for problems in that process that we have. Well, we can go down another rabbit hole where I, I would tell you that I think in the U.S. market, maybe North America, BIM has actually made our contractual relationships worse with contractors than, than it has helped. But I, I guess I would actually say that it, it, it doesn't require any more than we have today. Because if you're just saying, well, I share my models anyway, um, and I'm giving, I made it. Yeah. Well, and we get the sign off, but nobody, you know, every, you know, everybody has their version of don't trust this data, but what are you going to do? Not use it. Yeah. It's silly. Right. So it's, it would actually be just a much more controlled version of that same thing. And I'm, you, and the nice thing, at least in my mind about it, and I realized describing it the way I did, it's possible that you have an understanding or it's possible. You, it just sounds like words, but the idea that you could say, well, actually, you want the rated walls because you're going to perform light gauge work on those rated walls. I can just give you the rated walls as what you can build off. I can give you, you know, uh, beams, deck, and flooring as reference. And I can are just make that distinction when I'm sharing it with you because these things are part of a, a reference data set and these are editable things because, again... At the object level, you have the capability to think that way. We don't have the tools yet. But so that really means we can be more precise. We can have checked our work. We knew what we shared and the version of what it was in the time at that time. And I think everybody has to adopt the notion that things will change. But, at, you know, play it forward slightly. And what you have is the, you know, Contractor self-performing light gauge. I, I'm not saying it, but I, DPR does this in California. I know this. So this is a sort of model of the world I have in my head to think through it. And, oh, well, two months later, we made revisions. Here's the 16 walls that changed. We knew it. You can know it. Instead of having to you know, sort through a thousand things, it's a purely technology-driven approach that doesn't necessarily require the legal system to catch up. But at the same time, it would be a foundation to actually trust each other. Not trust is not even the word I'm looking for here. It's just reliable, where we can't be reliable today. Interesting to think of. And I guess when I think back to my question about would it change the way that we go about, I don't know, drawing, modeling, I think it would. I think about other software types, like for industrial design and maybe digital project, I think it's probably a lot like this, where... The example I'm thinking of is there's a control surface, and that is the ultimate like thing that everything else is built off of. But it is in that order. You define the surface, and everything else is built from that. So if the surface change, everything else updates, right? I could see us doing something like that, and I, I, I'm kind of thinking like of Topologic, which is a future guest on this show, the work that they're doing where they're describing space which we don't describe in architectural modeling at all. It, it is a, a byproduct of all of the elements being put in where they're put in, but kind of flipping the script when it comes to thinking about how you define space and then starting to think about a very low-level geometry that describes the boundaries of that space and 
maybe in your model, who owns those and what what's happening on this side of that line, what's happening on that side of the line. And then all we do is move the boundary and everything updates and changes a la the control surface model. Well, yeah, and like facades were exterior enclosures, like is a perfect example of, of a couple parts of this problem. So the only thing I would say is that, that I look at that differently is it would be useful if I could calculate that surface because actually if I had to, let's say it's something that's best modeled by hand. So this is one of the things I take a quite little tangent is to say that I don't think we should prescribe the way things have to be modeled for the system to work, but I'm a hundred percent in agreement that what you just described is something we should be able to do. So let's say we have the tools we have today. The facade got located next to the slab edge knowing that relationship and using to check it consistently, is it consistent or is it what it wants to be? And then generating the the geometry, if you will, to be the control service. Here you go. Here's the, here's the mullion offset. Here's the centerline geometry. Here's the panel locations and the control surface. You do your thing. You don't want my geometry anyway. You can take it if you want as a reference. You can build on top of it, but... You know, we just talked about this sort of multiple representation problem. Like, this is a perfect example where, like, the sharing representations is not even a big deal. Like, because most facade uh, manufacturers or fabricators aren't going to want our geometry more than just to look at it. And so taking it over and, and looking at it like we're doing today and then replacing it with their assemblies, I think, is makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But I just, like I, I said, I, I don't think we should assume this process has to assume, has to start with a parametric model. I think we would back ourselves into a corner if we required that. We should absolutely leverage them, but at the same time, I don't think we should um, have to start there. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So it gives you freedom, again, to pick the right tool for the job. It doesn't always have to default back to a, a really complex tool or or a, a particular workflow, whatever. Yeah. Interesting. So where you, you said you've been working on kind of prototyping this idea, um, so that you can, I, I would assume show the show that it's possible. And then where does this go? Well, so the, the, the undertone that I don't really talk about, and it's, it's, I could say that there are several conversations like these happening, which I think most people didn't believe would happen is my effort was to say, well, what what model would actually work for us? And I happened to grow up on a farm. As the pandemic started, I didn't really embrace it. Well, I hadn't, it hadn't dawned on me that this, this is the way the world works in the farming world. But co-ops are a big thing in farming. And not the, and I'll see if I can say this, farmers are pretty libertarian. Like, I like to make money and that's why I farm and I like being outside. And well, at least my father is. and and so forth. So like the co-op didn't exist because it was like somehow helpful for this larger purpose. It was helpful for me. And so I looked at that model and said, well, there's a very straightforward version of that that could help us solve this problem. Figure out how to describe the problem, figure out what to change, figure out what products to make to start that change and pitch firms on using a co-op model to build these things. And so that's the work I've been doing for the last 
oh, since probably about June of last year, I've talked to people outside of HOK. And largely until that time, I didn't talk to anybody inside HOK either. Because this was sort of, you know, our industry is, or, well, and our industry is not trustworthy of other firms. So anything that appeared to be like HOKs eh, would not go very far. So I, you know, I started with, I'm going to work on this thing. Are you okay with this? It's most likely my weekends and evenings. And that, that was fine. And so I've been, you know, I'm a slow burn sort of person. So I like to think of like, think about things, try stuff and then think about them again. So the work I started doing in June was to just put it in front of peers. I trust by midsummer, I'd put some of the ideas more on the metrics. Like this is how much drawing automation could save us, which is millions, which helps a particular audience come on board. I would assume. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I started, and it can always look at another other way. I had this whole conversation and then I started with drawing automation because, okay, what, what can I put a big price tag on? And the transition from drawing automation to how to solve it is how I actually got to the presentation I gave in the next build, which is why does it need to be solved? Because I, I bought a piece of land during the pandemic to build a house that I'm well, I'm not gonna. I'm not a good enough architect to want to sign it myself. But anyway, I had so I had a buddy go up there with me, and we're clearing some stuff. And on the way back, this is sort of full circle. He, he's arch, he's an architect at HOK as well, and uh, he was pointing out that in AutoCAD we didn't have these problems. Like you had the room tags in one file, and you just referenced them wherever you need, and maybe you had one for certain scales. But it, so like what you see if you were to watch the presentation I gave in London is, oh, it's not even just bad. It's worse than it was from a drawing production production standpoint. And so the point of that is then to get into the, okay, well, if drawings are so bad, why don't we use models? Well, models aren't great either because we lose all these things. And so this is the, this is the space that if you will, I was trying to come up with that proves the idea that we're doing it wrong from both sides. You know, we don't, we have, don't have modeling, right. We don't have drawing, right. Wow. Um, what's left. <laughs> and so that, that my, my hope is in the next month or two, I'll, I'll be putting in front of firms that have been talking to basically a pitch, a product pitch, like, okay, we'll build this. That if you can imagine tries to be pretty simple gets the data out in real time, which if you start with Revit, it's um it should not be a surprise that this is what Autodesk was telling their telling us they wanted to do in 2016, if you will. So the pieces are starting to be there to enable this sort of thing, independent of the cloud, um, if you want to go that route. And then look at oh can if we get the data out in real time, close to real time, distribute it because uh, I'm also a fan that or uh, a view that you shouldn't have to go to look for things. It should come to you. And this comes back to the software development model where, you know, if you're in a software development paradigm that uses Git, you have to ask for updates from everybody. You don't have to care what the updates are. If you need it, you got it. So if you do that and then you can apply 
sort of we going back to the the VFX discussion, which is generations. What what are some Gen three tools? So take a Revit, take a Rhino. You've externalized the data. What are some things you can build on top that actually uh, are really helpful? Like you can imagine change detection and these sort of things come immediately come into play. But you don't have to put the data back in Revit to do that. You might have to sort of make it easy to look at that data in Revit, but this is sort of I'm being a little vague because I don't have everything worked out, but this is sort of where I'm at at the, this point to sell that. Start, start with this. The perfect no, is it going to solve all our problems? Absolutely not. But it's, as far as I can tell, the only place we can start. The, so, number one, thank you for starting. I think the importance of taking it upon yourselves to do this is is huge, and it's not something many firms would be willing to do, uh, let alone then to say, hey, join us. Because I think a lot of firms at, at some point would say, we need to protect this and this is ours and this is our special sauce. And I think what you're seeing a much bigger picture than that, right? Which is solving an industry or a profession problem, more of an industry problem than even a professional problem. So what has the reception? I, I know you're not like just going all out, but what is it like with the people that you have talked to and who have jumped on board? So first of all, I'll say that I, I became aware of other efforts, and this mine isn't the only one. <laughs> I, I, Wait, be, you have a stadium bowl generator too? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> uh, there are other efforts afoot where people are trying to work together to do things. I'll say it that way. Mine is much more ambitious, and I would say very specific change of relationship build tools that leverage that. That's that's the tagline I'm trying to work with there, and then I can we can talk about all the other things that maybe come out of that but um the reception is very good what i hoped and what has taken me more time is you know i started with understanding the problem i mentioned like last summer i could do a presentation to talk about how on a i didn't say it here but like on one project i know and i could trace back to spending around two hundred ninety thousand dollars of billable hours moving room tags around um, I'm shaking my head. People can't see it, but holy crap. Jeez. It's like the project I talk about, not in detail in London has a million pieces of annotation, about seven times larger. It just boggles the mind how much wasted time is and how depressing the job is for someone that has to track through that <laughs> right. stuff. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is really the, I, I'm, I'm prone to, to sort of jumping around a bit, but this is to me the, like, I'm a technologist that thinks technology should be helpful, not we have this technology, so you should use it. I often have to tell people they have to use the technology we have, but this is sort of why I started this sort of this, this journey, if you will, I'm on, but the, the reception is very, very good. What I started doing thinking was I'll, I'll expose all the problems and refrain from telling everybody what I think, like how to solve it which always ended which with uh, what's next. And I was doing that because I didn't want to, you know, sort of be a dictator of, okay, these are the problems that this is how we solve it, you know, sort of come with me. I didn't want to do that because the whole point was to try and to get people on board with the idea of working together and figuring out ourselves, not as a group, not as an individual. 
any given, you know, so like even at a co-op perspective, like you need some number of firms to start a co-op. You can't start a co-op by yourself. So, so I gave tens of presentations where the, the, the reception was very good. It's the right idea, right, right things, but what's next? Looking for leadership. Yeah. Yeah. So basically I said, okay, let me, let me try to figure out if I can make a pitch and switch it around. I don't want to run a startup. I have no interest in, in doing any of that. I like, I like buildings. I like physical buildings. Uh, I like them getting built. I like them working and I like people having, you know, uh, fulfilling careers as designers and architects. And this is sort of why I got into this business at the same point. I thought it would be better at helping architects be better architects, you know, back in 20, 2005 when I made this transition. So I wasn't trying to sell my view of the future. And, and so what has happened since then is basically, okay, I have to collect everything I think and then try to come up with a pitch of a product that I do have to then convince people to want to build. The, the starter it doesn't have to be like it doesn't intentionally doesn't have to solve everything but um you know has to be has to be something you can understand why you would come together and pay some money to help build is it are you still thinking of it as this kind of separate layer that augments existing tools because i would assume like i see you're shaking your head but the the idea of wholesale change a tool set is daunting. Like people can't even comprehend what it takes to do that. Right. Wait. And I actually don't think it works. I, I'm just, I, I, so I said when we had conversation with Autodesk back in 2014, since then I've talked to every other comer, if you will, you know, Archicad, Bentley, Brickscad, uh, uh, still talking to that. I'm still talking to everybody. I'll talk to anybody, but I've come to the conclusion that it's a, unsolvable problem once you've made the transition from 2d to 3d like 2d to 3d there's an opportunity to compete but once you're into 3d tools they're so similar like there's differences don't get me wrong but it's it's impossible to replace one with another like it just doesn't make any business sense we we figured out it would cost we could save like uh the brown numbers switching to Archicad, we could save a bunch of money in one hand. We'd lose it all by working with our engineers and having to uh, interrupt with our engineers that are in Revit. It's all a wash. Yeah. It's all a wash. So this is basically where I've been in the mind that don't even try. It shouldn't be like people can try, companies can try, but we need to make it the only organization that can make that happen is if somebody does the work of opening up the platforms and that's not going to happen. But then at the same time, it's not really a business model to like open up Revit. Like nobody could get VC funding for that problem that you, you could get it for other sort of things, but you're not going to get it with, well, an open set of tools that makes the data useful. So it, it's one of these things where I actually think the, the need maps perfectly to the firms doing it themselves in support of this idea that they could, we can make our lives better and stimulate the market to build up the tools. I love this idea because the the notion of firms being somewhat in charge of their own destiny for the profession's sake is something that is, like I said, that's not something too many people are willing to to 
to take on or to even understand how to do, right? Because we're used to buying technology off the shelf and just using it for what's been developed for us by a tech company. I think everybody knows, like, let's say you're a Rhino user, just pick on somebody else for a while. Everybody that uses Rhino probably has a list of things they would like to see. And, And for all kinds of reasons, Rhino decides what they work on. And largely, if you're a Rhino user, let's say a SketchUp user or whatever, there's no incentive into the market to compete, you know, Rhino versus SketchUp because largely they are different markets. But if you can start to think about, well, actually they can achieve similar things and I we both interoperate the same data, you could imagine whether this would happen that it's much simpler for software number three that doesn't exist yet to come in and actually try to replace both of them. I'm not saying I want that to happen. I'm just saying that that kind of competition is what we actually need. And the, and the point is though, we know what we would like to get better in our software. So if there was competition in the market, we'd absolutely know what we would ask for from the software we use. Right. Especially knowing what we know now that we didn't know then when it was developed and and then built on top of over time, right? Like there, yeah, there are fundamental changes that we would ask for now that weren't even possible. Right. Back then. Yeah. And those, I don't think will be on the table for anyone unless we can change this relationship in the market to, to open it up enough. So it's, there's competitive capabilities that, that the lock-in is what is not what key is keeping competition and firms or other companies coming in and to solving these problems. And at the same time, you know, we've been, I've been at this a long time. We don't need another, you know, replace X with Y, right? Cause you'll, it's going to take 10 years for you to replace all the stuff that's in X. And by that time, you know, I'll want to move on from what you have. So if we can make an ecosystem that like, software companies and platforms can be big and monolithic and solve big problems or small and nimble but and solve problems and they're not how do you say stopped from doing that because you have to play with the big big entity and otherwise you'll never get anywhere i think that's at least in my mind the recipe to sort of start starting the way they to remake how our industry works from a technology perspective and it's the same on our side there's plenty of work for everybody. I think we can see that right now, especially. And the there's so many small, medium, and large-sized firms, and they they do all play an important role. And it's not like all of the work should be done by one, right? So it does seem to kind of fit both sides of the, the table that you're talking about, the, the tech side and the practice side, equally well, right? And it would give people options to be able to participate in that and and i think it would elevate the entire profession if that type of uh system existed i absolutely think that this is a everybody's got to get better because like you can't like you know hok is a big firm but we've we've used different software from everybody else for a while and it just causes like challenges that you either grow out of or you know, you go back from. So, you know, we actually became Autodesk customers because HOK Draw wasn't as interoperable as it needed to be with AutoCAD. 
this history is is one that I wasn't around, obviously, but in HOK's DNA, you know it, you're not going to solve it yourself. And this is, you know, my uh, previous CEO was what got us involved with building Smart International. Um, and so that's always been at HOK. But just in general, like what we're talking about is it's below table stakes. It's like uh, an architect can have a fulfilling job instead of this half menial and one third or like, I, my math wouldn't line up, but uh, you know, two thirds menial and one third interesting job. Why isn't it? Why can't it be two thirds interesting? That's an easy view of the world, I think, to want. And if there's a at least an idea, hope of a path there, it's certainly worthwhile to get to try to get there. Totally agree. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk through some of this today. There's so much more, and I will link to that article and the two videos. Actually, they're in the article that the presentations that you gave, one for Next Build, one for what was it? Smart Building Smart. Uh, Building it Smart. Was Building Smart right. Summit, yep. Building Smart Summit. So I'll I'll put that in there and and people can go watch your um soul crushing uh, statistics about how much <laughs> time we're spending doing Things we shouldn't be doing. Yeah, it's only meant to be soul crushing. So we it's eye opening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so everybody agrees it's soul crushing. It's a problem. Yeah, totally. Well, Greg, thank you so much. Is there where, where can people follow what you are doing online and what HOK is doing? What's the best place to point them toward? So HOK is really good at HOK.com. I'm on Twitter. You'll get mostly me retweeting cat and possum videos on Twitter, but I, I do ask the occasional question there. I'm on LinkedIn as well, but I don't, I don't think I've ever posted anything in LinkedIn. So Twitter is the best way to follow me and get in touch and those sort of things. I'll put links to those. Yeah. You'll get updates on everything I'm doing that as soon as they become public, they will be there. So great. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. It's really important. And I'm, I'm really happy that we could have this conversation and share it today. So I uh, appreciate your time. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Troxel podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarchit.com. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon.